Yeah, they'll have the Homeland Security come in, which is customs, and say, and they'll seize parts off your shelf. You don't imagine that happening here in the United States of America. <laughs> no. Oh, imagine a big company uses the services of the federal government to support themselves. I'm, I'm stunned. <laughs> yeah, right. That's Gay Gordon Byrne. She's the head of a repair association. She and her teammates fight every single day for our rights. And you may not even know about the rights that you don't have. It all comes down to, can you fix what you've actually purchased? And in this Kim Commando Explains podcast, we're going to be talking about our fundamental rights. Today, companies are very, very protective of all their devices. Apple doesn't even sell repair parts to independent companies. About two years ago, Apple sued a Norwegian repair shop owner by the name of Henrik Hoosby. Why? Well, Hoosby tried to ship some iPhone screens. Apple claimed that they were counterfeit, so Norwegian Customs seized the screens. Apple sent Hoosby a letter saying he had to pay $3,500 to get them back. Oh, and he also had to admit wrongdoing if he didn't want a lawsuit. Well, Hoosby refused, so off to the courts they went. Now, although the Norwegian court sided with Hoosby, Apple couldn't let it go. In a true David versus Goliath fashion, it appealed the decision, prolonging the court case, and of course, all along the way, increasing Hoosby's legal fees because this repair shop owner tried to just ship some screens. It happens close to home, too. One American repair professional by the name of Louis Rossman wanted to ship some aftermarket laptop batteries. Okay, Customs and Border Patrol seized them before they could make it to his repair shop. And you might be wondering, what is going on? Why does Apple delivery go after repair shops? Why are these tech companies so protective over repairs? Yeah, you have to follow the money train. Tech companies want to make as much money off of all of us as possible. And it may be a little embarrassing to think of yourself this way, but you're just a cash cow to them. Even after you bought a smartphone, companies still want to squeeze as many dollars as they can from you. Now, when your smartphone breaks down, you take it to the shop, you shell out some money, and the same goes for your laptops, your TVs, your gaming consoles, even your tractors. Yeah, this issue affects us all, whether we work in a cubicle or on the farm. Now, people are not taking this line down. We're fighting it in the courts across the United States. Europeans are also in this battle. Now, recently, this is interesting, the European Union rolled out a right to repair law. Basically, the law requires electronic and appliance makers to repair their products for up to 10 years. It's all part of this effort to reduce waste. We're a little behind in the United States, but we're looking into some legislation throughout the country. Plus, we saw a huge breakthrough last year when the U.S. considered a federal right to repair law for the first time in this country. And to make a long story short, hospitals wanted to fix medical equipment during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, politicians proposed the Critical Medical Infrastructure Right to Repair Act of 2020. So when hospitals buy equipment like ventilators, they often have to sign these big service agreements that say they can't work on their own equipment. But as the pandemic pushed hospitals to their limit, they just faced a ton, as you can imagine, of logistical issues while trying to repair the equipment. And it was all critical stuff. And when a patient's life is on the line, you don't have the time to wait for the squeaky wheels of bureaucracy to fix your equipment. You have to act fast. And last year's proposed bill wanted to grease those wheels just a little bit. Now, this is just one example of right to repair advocates trying to ease the burden of fixing equipment. There are a ton of factors to play in this really, really complex story. 
from hospitals to game shops. This issue is affecting everyone. It doesn't matter if you're a mechanic or a farmer. You really need to know about this powerful movement that's set to explode this year. Now, I know your ears just perked up. You were like, farmers? I mean, what's going on with farmers and the right to repair? Imagine this. You're driving on your tractor in the middle of the cornfield. It breaks down. You have nowhere to go. And you can't fix it since modern tractors are really just computers nowadays. And we're seeing more farmers than ever turn to hacking. It's the only way that they can get their equipment back that they purchased. I mean, when you're harvesting, every second counts. So you need your tractor up and running as soon as possible. We're going to go into a lot more detail on that later on. So buckle up, stay tuned. We have a lot to cover in this Kim Commando Explains podcast, and you don't want to miss a moment. Okay, we're going to be talking about this fascinating trend that's happening. It's sweeping across the country. It's been around for a few years, but it's set to explode this year. The medical breakthrough I told you about earlier could actually pave the way to all sorts of legislation protecting our rights. It's super interesting. You may not even know this, but you don't have the right to fix your own gadgets. Okay, you can try, but... Good luck just trying to pull apart your iPhone without breaking it. You'll need an extremely specialized screwdriver to get the job done. Apple doesn't exactly make it easy for any of us. And our next guest knows all about that. For years, she's been fighting for your rights. Gay Gordon Byrne. She's the ringleader of the right to repair movement. And at least that's what Motherboard crowned her. She's fighting against big companies to make sure that we're all allowed to fix the things that we buy. And wow, do those companies know how to fight back? Gay, thank you so much for joining us. And I was super excited because I've heard about you. I've known about you for so many years. Now, how many products are on the market right now that are just impossible to fix? (laughs) How about about 90% of them? There's very little on the market that you can fix. And now the products, they span all the gamut, correct? Yeah, I mean, you can't fix a tractor, you can't fix a refrigerator, you can't fix a TV, you can't fix a cell phone. Um, it just, it, you name a product and I'll tell you that you can't fix it. That's the easiest way to put it. So is the whole idea that we won't be able to fix it when it breaks, then we just go out and buy a new one? I think that's high on the thought process of the manufacturers. I don't think they're really trying to make things that don't break, and they're trying to make it very expensive for you to fix them so that you would naturally want to go and buy a new one. How did you get involved in all this? Oh, God. Um, I worked for a company that was doing third-party repairs of mainframes. And then one day, um, Oracle bought Sun Microsystems, and they said no more third-party repairs. And that kind of set off a cascade of problems in the industry, in the large enterprise industry. And I wound up saying, hey, um, I got nothing really else to do right now. I'm kind of (laughs) semi-retired. So I wound up being volunteered. So repairing mainframes, wow, that's something. Well, well, you've always been able to fix them, um, even in the 60s. 60s, 70s, 80s, it wasn't until after 2000, really uh, really only in the last decade, um, that you can't fix them. And that's not a technical problem. That's a you can't get what you need to get. You can't get the software tools. You can't get the diagnostics. Uh, A lot of times if you order a part, the part might show up six months later. 
So functionally, you can't get parts. Um, these are all things that make it really hard for anybody other than the manufacturer to offer a repair service. Does it also extend into cars? Because basically cars are just rolling computers now. They are um, rolling computers. And the reason it doesn't extend to cars is there was legislation passed uh, first in Massachusetts in 2012 that gave the residents of Massachusetts the right to repair their cars. And it wasn't only Massachusetts that was looking at the legislation. Um, So the manufacturers rather quickly um, decided they weren't going to continue to fight all these different bills, and they agreed to a national memorandum of understanding. And it's that memorandum that we copied. And you're trying to put that into the tech industry or what industry? Everything. Everything with a chip. And everything has a chip, doesn't it? (laughs) Except for us. What what can't you repair is basically anything with a chip. Gosh. And it's only a matter of time before we have chips, too. I just know it. Yeah. So that would be so true. So, yeah, if you have a choice between a toaster with a chip and a toaster that doesn't have one, you're probably going to get a longer use of the toaster that doesn't have a chip. A, because you can repair it, and B, because it's not going to toast the chip. I had that happen to me personally. I like to point that out, that sometimes people put chips in things that have no business having chips because they're not durable enough. I never heard of a toaster having a chip. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it turned out that little bagel setting (laughs) was controlled not by a switch, but by a chip. Now you're going to make me want to go look at my Quasinart toaster because it has a bagel setting to see if there's a chip on the inside. I never would have in all these years and I've been doing tech probably as long as you have that I've never thought of a chip being in a toaster. Wow. Um, Well, when when my Quasinart toaster broke, um, I was... I, I had the option of going to one of our repair demo days that we had set up in the in the Albany, uh, New York Capitol building. And I brought my toaster with me, and one of the techs there took it apart and said, see? <laughs> yeah, there was a chip in there, and it was burnt. <laughs> Along with the bagel. Um, what other things surprise you that, have, that you found that has, have chips on the inside? Oh God! I think I've ceased to be surprised. The thing that one of the things that bothered me is my grandchildren are buying electric toothbrushes that are have batteries in them and they're disposable. Uh, they probably have a chip in there too, but it's it's the idea that why on earth would you buy something disposable that's got all that technology inside of it? Because you, it doesn't belong in the trash. You're going you're gonna to wind up putting electronics into landfills, or if there's a battery in there, the battery can actually be explosive. And if a trash compactor crunches the battery, it can start fire. Some of these things that are being made just are bad ideas. That's true, without a lot of forethought. I, I, I look at even some of the press releases that come across my email and the Kickstarter projects and the Indiegogo and – Anything that's for sale on Amazon that is questionable, it's like, wow, you know, we're not giving any real consideration to the long-term ramifications of having such a product. Totally agree. Now, what about Apple coming down hard on independent mechanics? What's going on there? Uh, They're very litigious. They like to um, police their um, parts supply. So they will go after, you know, if a lot of the parts that are coming into the U.S. that 
are used in Apple phones, they're bought overseas. They're all coming out of China from either the same factory that built the part for Apple and some just fell off the end of the truck and they get scooped up, or um, there are alternative alternative parts, but Apple comes in and will seize, use DHS and customs to seize these parts. And um, then if they see a pattern, they'll go after the shop itself and they'll, they'll do a DHS audit. And that's how they're catching people that are buying, legitimately buying parts, but the Apple is claiming that it's their property or I forget what their legal excuse is, but they're very litigious. So they'll do a DHS audit? I've never heard of such a thing. Wow. Yeah, the, they'll have the a Homeland Security come in, which is customs, and say, and they'll seize parts off your shelf. Wow, I, I just yeah, you don't you don't imagine that happening here in the United States of America. <laughs> no. Oh, imagine a big company uses the services of the federal government to support themselves. I'm I'm stunned. <laughs> yeah. Right. What's happening legally with the right to repair? Well, all of the bills, they, like I explained earlier, the memorandum of understanding that the auto industry reached with essentially the independent mechanics was a very good bill. And it, the only problem was is that it said automobiles, and it was very specific. So we we basically did some word substitution and took out the word automobile and substituted digital electronic part or product. And that's been the template that we've been, you know, we pick at it and make it better. We take out, you know, very auto-centric language. Mm -hmm. But basically it's the MOU, um, only revised to apply to something with a chip. And those bills, we started with one bill in 2014. We just had our 25th bill filed this year. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it's really a lot. It's really exciting because, you know, every year we get better at it and more and more states are coming forward. And they're coming forward from every walk of life. There's no there's no pattern to um, which states are involved. We've got Republicans, we've got Libertarians, we've got tree huggers, we've got liberals. There's probably a few others in there. Um, they're ex- they're really frustrated by the fact they can't fix their stuff. So is that the end game to have to have the ability to let the consumer fix whatever they want to fix if they want to fix it? Absolutely. Um, and the reason it's focused on consumers is that they're the owner. You buy something, it's yours. It's not. It doesn't belong to Apple any longer. It doesn't belong to Samsung. It doesn't belong to Sony or Panasonic or any of these companies. It belongs to you. You paid for it. Um, and the fact that they're making it hard for you to use your equipment is because you can't just go out back and manufacture your own circuit boards. You just can't. So you've got to have a level of cooperation from the manufacturers that we've never had to require. You know, this is this is a problem that's pretty new since 2000. So if you could you even buy the part to repair your own let's just say tech gear I guess you could buy the parts on eBay or Amazon, right? Well, now it gets tricky. <laughs> you can buy parts that you don't know where they came from. Um, and they're probably not – they could be authentic parts, you know, legitimate parts that came from the manufacturer, or they might be somebody's knockoff, and they might work. They might work just fine. In fact, most of them do. But if you if you really want to get a manufacturer original part, the companies won't sell them. They literally will not sell them. 
So they complain that, it, that consumers are buying all these, um, like, less than kosher parts, but they won't sell their own. Um, these are the kinds of things we hear often in testimony in opposition um, to the idea that you can fix your own stuff, that, that companies shouldn't be required to sell parts. I'm like, well, yeah, but if you can't sell parts, you can't fix your stuff. <laughs> and it's a, it, it becomes a circle. You, you get stuck in that circle. You, you're stuck with the manufacturer forever. And I'm sure the manufacturers spin it as they're helping the consumer in some way, right? Oh, God, yeah. You're, you're, you're much better off. You're much safer to hear them say it. You're much safer to only use their services because they're the only ones that can provide authentic parts. They're the only ones that have access to the diagnostic tools. They're the only ones that know what they're doing. That's a good one. Um, <laughs> but, they, but they steadfastly refuse to let anybody take a course and learn how to do it because they won't do that. Uh, they won't sell parts. They won't sell tools. They won't sell diagnostics. So you're really in a corner if the manufacturer takes that position. And that's why we have to have legislation, because there are some good guys out there, uh, but they've got no incentive to continue being good guys. And there's really no reason to believe that they would always be good guys. I mean, you can buy, um, especially in the laptop and desktop area, you can buy some equipment that's very repairable, but the day will come when they suddenly say, nah, we're done with that, no more repair. It's a monopoly. Getting ext- I feel like we're all getting extorted. I feel the same way. Um, we have introduced the – I mean, we, I, we've spoken with various legal scholars and people at the Department of Justice and people at the FTC, and I think that these are true monopolies, but they're very difficult to go after because there's so many – there's literally thousands of companies with the same lousy policies. And our justice system or our, our um, antitrust system is not set up for – a group. It's set up for it. You go after the one big guy, like you go after Facebook, um, but you don't go after everybody else that's doing exactly the same thing when you go after Facebook. You go after them one at a time. Have you run into any corporate lobbyists along the way that, that have thrown some wrenches? No pun intended. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> we even see the same lobbyists show up at every hearing. There's like there's like a right to repair circuit for lobbyists. I mean, they show up everywhere, uh, and they say exactly. They're so unimaginative. They say exactly the same time, the same things. Having heard all of the all of the explanations of how they're full of garbage, um, and they still say them over and over and over again. They're like robots. Um, yes, and they have unlimited money. So um, there's we expect to see the same lobbyists every single time, and they say. And they have no principles. It's also really frustrating to watch people who you know know that they are lying, and they still lie. <laughs> it's like, you know what, you don't even need to show up. We'll just play what you said last time. I <laughs> uh, wish we could. It would be a lot easier. <laughs> so, so what do you want people to know about the right to repair? They need it. That's the first thing they need to know is that if they think they don't have a horse in this race, they do. Because everything that you buy now, you will never be able to fix unless we get this legislation passed. There is no le- we have no legal protections as consumers, none, um, that will make sure that the things that we buy today will be able to fix tomorrow. There's, there's nothing that – there's no law that makes that happen. We have to do new law. And where can people go to learn more? 
www.repair.org. <laughs> nice, easy website name. They have any interest in trying to make sure that this legislation happens, they need to use their voice personally um, and use our tool. We have a free tool there that says, hey, write your legislator. Um, you put in your address. It automatically finds who your legislators are, tees up an email with all the right headers and information, and you just say, hey, I want my right to repair, and this is my repair story, and this is my stupid toaster that broke, whatever it is you want to talk about. Uh, the more stories that people tell, the more, re more it resonates with legislators, because they get tons and tons of emails saying, support this bill. And there's no information. There's no, there's no personality there. It's just, a, yeah, I clicked some widget. But if you ha take the time to explain why you feel you need the right to repair, those messages really resonate. And they do change people's minds. Gay Gordonburg, she's really something, isn't she? Okay, now we are leaving this and we're going to the farm where people work hard to put food on our tables. Tons of those people drive high-tech tractors. But what happens when the tractors break? Well, that's where we get into tractor hacking. That's what it's called. It's a fast-growing trend in the farming community. Imagine a person in overalls and gloves hunched over a computer squinting at ones and zeros to get their tractor back up and running. And we're going to be talking more about tractors, but really tractor technology. And here are two words that I bet you never thought you'd ever hear put together. Tractor hacking. What is that about? So stay right where you are. We have this and a whole bunch more you don't want to miss. We have to say thank you to a few partners in our podcast. I'd like to welcome Tom Schwartz now to the podcast. He's a fifth-generation Nebraskan farmer, and he's advocating for the right to repair his tractor. So, Tom, thanks for joining us. So now, are you near Omaha, Nebraska? No, we're actually more in the western part of Nebraska. So where our operation lies is just about halfway between Omaha and Denver in a lot of line. And so have you always been a farmer? Yes. Uh, in fact, my daughter and my son farm with us, and they represent the sixth generation on our farm wow. in the United States. And so I know I'm not a farmer, obviously. I'm from New Jersey. Forgive me. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what, what do you farm? Well, we're a little unusual for our area. Uh, we're organic farmers. And uh, so most of our ground is organic, or it will be after we go through a transition period, which we're in on some ground now. Uh, but we farm a lot of traditional row crops like corn, soybeans, wheat, alfalfa. Uh, we also do a lot of field peas today. Wow. And so, so what, what did that transition, what does that transition mean when you say you're going organic? It sounds like this was a process. It, it is a process. The, uh, the farmers that farmed this land previously were conventional, so they used chemicals and, and uh, GMO seed and things of that nature. And, of course, we've got to be free of that for three years before we harvest a crop. So that's basically we have to farm it organically for three years without getting organic prices for our grain or commodity, oh, whatever wow. it might be. So your return on investment must be pretty low then. Transition is a tough time for an organic farmer, yes. It's very difficult because you just, you know, you just aren't getting that much money out of out of the crops that you raise on that on that land. And in fact, in some cases it can be half or less. Wow. And so how many acres do you have there? 
we're not very big operators. We only farm about uh, 750, 800 acres, I think, is where we're at now. You know, I don't, again, I don't know a lot about farming, but that's a lot of land <laughs> to me. It's... Um, in farming today, no, it's not. Um, the average farmer in our area probably is around uh, 1,500 to 2,000 acres, oh, wow. I would guess. Um, and we have some operations getting into the 10,000 area, of course. Uh, not many. There's only one or two I can think of that would be getting up into that arena. But, And then, of course, in different parts of the country, size, you know, it, it makes a big difference. We would be a very big farmer in New Jersey, for example. <laughs> exactly. So. so, you know, my whole focus is technology. And um, mm-hmm. since you started farming, how has technology changed your job? Well, technology has made dramatic changes in farming today. When I was young, uh, my dad and my grandfather and I would help, you know, as a kid uh, with almost all the repairs. And they, and they did almost all the repairs themselves, including complete overhauls of tractors and things, you know, that were very large repairs. Um, then as time went on, you know, technologies come in more and more, and it got to the point where we really didn't feel comfortable that we had the knowledge to always do the repair. So we'd start hiring the dealership or a local mechanic to help us with those repairs. And now today, of course, virtually every component on a combine and a tractor coming off the assembly line today is controlled by a computer. Tell me what the computers do, for example, in a combine or on a tractor. What do they do? They handle everything. Is it almost like you're just kind of sitting there not doing anything and the computers are taking over? Walk us through through some of the processes. Well, it depends on the age of the equipment to some extent. The earliest computers and tractors, of course, all they controlled was the engine and the hydraulic system and electrical system and things like that. And and it really wasn't from an operator operator standpoint. It really wasn't much different than you know the old tractors that were mechanically based. Uh, today, you know the newest tractors are they will they're they're they'll, they have auto driving automatic driving. So you set your lines up, and the tractor will drive itself going through the field. And uh, the combines actually the newest combines will actually make changes in the settings of the combine to do a better job of harvesting the crop on the move without you even telling it to do so. What other kind of tech are you using on the farm? Uh, Organics, you have to be able to track a a crop from the time it's, well, actually, what's been done to the ground to prep it to the time the crop is put in the ground to the harvest and storage and where it went after storage. So, for instance, if you were to buy an organic chicken mm-hmm. where you live, you can actually follow. You could. There's a paper trail that shows you where that chicken was butchered, where that chicken was raised, where the feed that that, that went into that chicken. You can find out where that came from. I mean, it's a it's a paper trail the the entire and through the entire process. So are all organic terms created equally if when we go to the uh, the produce department? No, um, as a short answer. Um, there are terms out there that I, I personally don't put much trust in. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because there's they're not overseen by anybody. For instance, our all our record keeping is actually audited by um, an, a, an organic inspector that is licensed by the federal government. Um, now, some there are some good programs out there, like natural programs, you know, where they plaster the word natural on. Some of those natural programs are good programs, and, and I, if I knew that was behind that product, I would trust it. But there, the term natural has been taken to mean almost anything. Well, the reason why I asked, Tom, is I... <sighs> Is like I'm really, and I always have been. I haven't eaten meat since I was 18, and um, uh-huh. I've always believed like whatever you put in your body, it's a machine, and what you put in is what you'll uh-huh. get out, right? Uh, True. And mm-hmm. so, quite often, I look at these labels, and I always thought to myself, how do I really know that that's organic? How do I really know that that's natural? And so, and so, you kind of answered the question that you probably don't know unless you maybe trust the brand or do some research on the brand or the, the company who's behind it. Um, it, It's interesting. But but if it has the organic seal, if the product you buy has the organic seal on it, that, that you can pretty much trust. I'm not going to say there aren't bad actors within the organic industry because there, there are, and I could point them out to you if you wanted me to, but uh, for the most part, it's pretty much locked down solid. Now you get into these other, other, um, labels, and I'm, I'm not going to say that there. So it was probably about 10 years ago, and this is the reason why I asked you, Tom, where you were located in Nebraska, is that I visited a good friend of mine, Chip Davis. I went to his farm in Omaha, Nebraska. And Chip, I don't know if you're familiar with his name, but uh, he's the founder of Mannheim Steamroller, and they do all those fabulous Christmas concerts, and and uh, they also get into Halloween music and all kinds of other things. So Chip looked at me and he said, Kim, have you ever, ever driven a tractor? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, no, I, uh, I live in Phoenix. We don't have a lot of farms in the desert where I live. And so he put me on the top of the tractor and, uh, and then he got up and then we drove down for about a mile. And then he got off the tractor and said, okay, now it's up to you. You drive the tractor. And I'll tell you, it was not easy. And I'm a big car buff. I can drive anything from a Ferrari going 250 <laughs> miles an hour to a, to a 1946 pickup truck, which is my favorite truck of all time. But it wasn't easy. Uh, it was a lot of work, especially like not a lot of power steering there. What, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't easy. And what about the tractor hackers? Imagine this. You're driving on your tractor, crops as far as the eye can see. You're miles away from home, your tool shed, any source of power. Your tool is harvesting crops and clearing lands. And all of a sudden, the engine stops. It just grinds to a halt. Your tractor is dead. So you have to fix the tractor. But how can you fix a computer system in the middle of the field, especially if it's a proprietary one? It's a big problem that farmers of the past never had to deal with. Back in the good old days, farmers could fix their own tractors, maybe had to break a sweat along the way, but at least they get in there and do it. Farm equipment has always required consistent maintenance. But since modern equipment is very high tech, today's farmers are stuck between a rock and a hard place. And coming up, We're going to learn even more about tractor hacking. So stay right where you are. We have to say thank you to a few partners in our podcast. Hey, welcome back to Tech You Should Know. We're speaking with Tom Schwartz. He is a big time Nebraska organic farmer. 
And he actually bought a tractor and then he realized, wait, I don't know who really owns this tractor because I can't really get inside and try to fix it. When was the first tractor that you purchased that you realized maybe you needed like a bonafide pocket protector to fix it? It, You know, the first issues we had in this arena were with an early 8000 series tractor as an 8100 John Deere tractor uh, we bought in the late 90s. Um, and, and it was not totally controlled by the computers, but, but a lot of the significant systems were controlled by it. And so whenever we had a problem, uh, there's a screen that a code would appear and you'd have to call the dealership and say, okay, what's this code mean? And then they tell us, well, you know, we have to come out and work on it. So that, that was really the first I started to run into this. And so what were some things that were going wrong at that time? Oh, that's hard to even, it's hard to even get into that um, because it gets into some really technical stuff oh, does it? as far okay. as the way the, the way the tractor works. Uh, the hydraulic systems, there's, there's a number of sensors uh, that check various pressures and levels and, and um, actuators on the hydraulic system, you know, and all it takes is one sensor to fail and, Boom, you get a code. Now, this sensor could be a fairly minor thing. It could be a $10 sensor. But if you know where it's at, you can just pull it off, put a new one on, and away you go again. But it could be something far more serious, too. How much is a tractor? I probably should have asked you this earlier, but how much How much is a tractor? I have no idea. Um, it kind of depends on what you want. I mean, a smaller tractor, like you might use if you've got an acreage, to mow or to do some basic dirt or move snow or something like that. You know, you can get small tractors like that probably in the thirty to 40000 range if you're kind of careful on how you, you spend your money. Uh, the kinds of tractors we use, of course, uh, they're up in the, you know, new ones are at, right now are about a half a million dollars. And, uh, of course, combines are starting to approach a million dollars now. But that's a considerable investment. It really is. It's a huge investment. Wow. You'd think, they would, you'd think they would send us a CD that would reset everything at least, you know, so for that amount of money. Yeah, or yes, or at least tell you what the magical, <laughs> you know, the magical control alt delete is on yes. the tractor. <laughs> we just wanted, we just wanted to come back. Okay, that's all. We just need to plow the fields. Um, are there third parties that you can call for a John Deere tractor to have it repaired? You know, there are third party mechanic shops out there yet. Um, it's a little hard to do that kind of work because of the, uh, you know, the fact that Deere and presumably all the other companies don't allow, um, you know, repair information out of their shop. So they're, they're very limited on what they can do. And I'll give you an example. I could, I can, uh, we have what's called a power takeoff on our tractors. And it's basically a way to transmit power from the engine to a piece of equipment that's maybe pulled behind the tractor. If that PTO goes out, I can go buy a used PTO and slip it in there. You know, and that's probably within our abilities to do that. But I can't get the tractor to accept the new part. I've got to bring the dealer in to do that. Oh, wow. Because the tractor has to, the computers and the tractor have to say, yeah, we're okay with working with serial number XYZ, you know, part. Hmm. 
you know, it's it's almost how Apple had the whole monopoly on the batteries that you couldn't change the battery. You had to you had to go to Apple for the battery, isn't it? Absolutely, it's exactly the same thing. Um, I, I I have a problem with this in in terms of the monopoly, and, and that's what they've done is they've established a monopoly on repair, and. I don't think monopolies in the long run are good for anybody. I mean, I would stand in front of the John Deere board of directors or the other companies today, and I would argue against a monopoly on repair. I think in the long term, monopolies are a bad thing for people. Competition, you know, makes people better. Yeah, competition actually spurs innovation. Because suddenly mm-hmm, we can get exactly. better things, and we not just have one Google, right? I mean, right. Could, could you imagine trying to compete against Google, trying to compete against oh. Facebook, trying to compete against Amazon? It's it would be death. I yeah, I don't I don't know how you would even do it. I just I mean the money you would have to have behind you to do undertake a project like that just is more than my mind can even wrap it, wrap around. So, Tom, what is your goal? Ultimately, we're trying to get for the agricultural equipment business the same rules that the car business already has. I mean, the, as, as you uh, as you said, if you want to take your Mercedes to a shop down the road instead of the dealership, they can actually plug into your car, figure out what the problem is, and repair it there. Uh, and that's the kind of thing we're trying to get here so that we have – other options besides just the dealer, you know, we purchased this thing from coming out and working on it. Is it just John Deere? No, no, it's not just John Deere. In fact, I can tell you a story about an Agco product. Um, we, I had a friend that was was getting a sprayer ready uh, to go, and he was just checking everything out, and he noticed that he had a tail light out. So, you know, okay, well, I'll quick pull that. And, and he went down to Napa, which is an automotive store, and mm-hmm. uh, got a taillight, you know, plugged in and put it in his sprayer and got done with everything. You know, okay, I'm ready to go spray. So he goes, takes off to go spray. Nothing will work. And so he had to finally bring Agco out to look at it and figure out what's the problem here. Well, it turned out that taillight has a chip in it. Oh, they chipped that light, and that sprayer would not operate unless a certified Agco tail light was in it. And what's the what was the price difference? Do you know between the the certified I, tail light I, and a, one from Napa? Yeah, that I don't know. I did not ask him that, but I'm sure it's considerably more expensive. I'm sure it is considerably more expensive. I bet you it is. But so that's an example of where this business has gone. And where it's going, that's probably my bigger worry is, you know, as this gets even worse as time goes on, you know, where are we going to end up? Where do you think you will end up? Well, the way it's going, if if somebody doesn't step in and stop these manufacturers from doing that kind of thing, you know, ultimately, every time you want to fix a tire, there'll be a chip in the tire and you've got to call John Deere or Agco to fix your tire because, it's got a chip in it, and the only person that can activate the chip is the company. So, you know, if you're selling Goodyear tires, you know, you might be out of luck to, to repair people's tires. You know, that seems to be the direction we're headed with this thing. And I don't mean that specifically on tires, sure. but I'm just using that as an example. So you are being held hostage, aren't you? Oh, absolutely we are. Absolutely. You, you, 
you have to stay with the company. And, and I, I honestly, I feel that this is this this monopoly is something John Deere's been working on for a long, long time. Uh, back when I was a young kid, we had a dealership in our little town. Well, Deere decided we don't want more than one dealership for county at that per county at that point, so they closed our dealership down. And over time. You know, they just kept closing dealerships down. And we, now today we have these mega dealerships where there may be dealerships like one per county or one per two or three counties, but they're all owned by the same company, the dealer mm. company. Right. And uh, so our options just keep getting less and less every year because these make what I call mega dealerships, you know, they're they're biting off entire sections of states. I mean, the dealership closest to me basically controls all John Deere dealerships from uh, not quite, uh, well, from McCook, Nebraska, all the way nearly to Iowa and Missouri, and in the southern half of Nebraska and, and northern half of Kansas, one dealership. Well, you know, and I'm sure more than fourth in Kansas, I should say. I'm sure somebody's listening right now. They're saying, so why don't you just buy another brand? Don't buy John Deere. Well, the brands are all doing the same thing. You know, um, the closest international uh, dealership to me is in or Case IH. I'm sorry. I show my age occasionally. <laughs> but the closest Case IH dealership to me um, is Titan Machinery. And they essentially control most of the dealerships from in Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota. I mean, they go over into Minnesota, Montana, Idaho. They they control almost all the dealerships in that entire area. Wow. So there's there's just no competition anymore. And, and that's been the goal of these companies and these mergers was to eliminate competition. You know, and if you're eliminating competition in order to be more efficient, I can understand that. But what but the goal, in my mind, of most of this consolidation that's taken place is to eliminate competition. Well, it happens in across many industry, not just with mm-hmm. farming. If you look at what yes. Facebook has done and Google, they, they buy their competitors. And so then they absorb them and then they may even shut them down if they can't figure out how to make money at them. I mean, it's it's uh, it's done in the television industry, the radio industry. And so, you know, there are probably people listening right now and says, you know what, this is the United States. This is what happens. And there is some truth to that. It is what happens. But I think we as a people also have to be wise enough to understand that you know, when we allow a company to get to the side, it's size that it's, and this term was used a number of years back, you know, too big to fail. Yeah. That, that's a problem. You know, do we really want that? Is that from a public policy perspective? Is that a good idea? Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. You know, hopefully we'll be able to um, bring some attention to this. It's a, it's a very serious issue. And thank you for your time. Okay. Well, thank you for your attention to it. Who would have thought that farmers would one day be butting heads with big tech? But like I said earlier, the right to repair impacts us all. When we can't fix the things that we pay for, that hurts us in the long run. Repairs can cost a small fortune on their own. Take tractors, for example, like we're just talking about with Tom. When it breaks down, they could go to the manufacturer for repairs, but that's pretty expensive. A farmer can spend $3,000 trying to figure out why the tractor just died. Then, a few months later, one of the high-tech features will just stop working. 
You have to take it in, and then you leave $6,000 lighter. The cycle just repeats itself time and time again until you've sunk tens of thousands of dollars into fixing a tractor that already cost you a fortune in the first place. That's why so many people are using resources like iFixit to repair their own gadgets. Some are going as far as to joining hacking forums and breaking into their own devices. I mean, when Apple and other companies won't provide you the diagnostic software you need, what else can you do? We learned a lot about the repair revolution today. And just to clarify, this is not just about farm tech. The movement encompasses all technology. If you can't fix it, you don't own it. That's their manifesto. If you're inspired to do some digging, head over to ifixit.com. This website is great for anyone who wants to flex their DIY skills. They have a ton of information on the right to repair movement. And if you want some practical help, they have repair guides, helpful resources. But just keep in mind, if you do repair your gadget, your device, whatever it is, you may actually be voiding the warranty. If you like what you just heard, hey, support our efforts because it's people like you that help us make this type of programming. Join the Commando community. It's just a few bucks a month. You get the Kim Commando Show podcast. That's my three-hour weekly radio show. Not Kim Commando Explains. It's the Kim Commando Show podcast. And you can get it for free for 30 days to try it out over at GetKim.com. Once again, that's GetKim.com. If you're looking for a great podcast, you don't want to miss this. Three hours, commercial free, and you're going to love it. You can download the podcast right now over at GetKim.com. And after that, it's just a few bucks a month. And we offer discounts for seniors, military vets, and all kinds of service personnel. And if you like this podcast, do me a favor, hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a great five-star review. That helps more people find our podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. And let's thank the folks behind the scenes, Mike James, for putting it all together and Serena O'Sullivan for her reporting. And thanks to Tom Schwartz for taking a break from farming and Gay Gordon Byrne for letting us know about this right to repair movement. I'm Kim Commando. Keep on trucking. Oh. Uh-huh.